The first reading this morning is from the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew, um, chapter 22, and the first 14 verses. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, maltreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was a man not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The second reading is from the Old Testament. Uh, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 25, uh, reading from verses 1 to 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. And when the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like the heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds and the song of the ruthless was stilled. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-matured wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-matured wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Well, I don't know what 
sermon you were expecting to hear on our gospel passage for this morning, but possibly it might have gone something like this. God's kingdom is like a wedding banquet, which he is throwing for his son, Jesus. Those whom he first invited, the oh-so-religious and pious Jews, have declined to attend uh, and have even killed the messengers that God has sent to invite them. So God has sent his messengers to the highways and byways of the world instead to invite everyone else to the party. From tax collectors and prostitutes, from riffraff to nobodies, from the blinds to the lame, God drags into his party the people who thought they'd been forgotten. However, whilst God may have invited everybody, this isn't a no-strings-attached invitation, because whilst God loves everybody, he doesn't want them to stay as they are. After all, who would want a serial killer to get in without changing his behaviour? The invitation might be for all, but the people must still accept it, and must behave appropriately if they are to stay at the party. So the person who comes, metaphorically speaking, in the wrong clothes, who doesn't clothe themselves with garments of love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness, is in effect saying that they don't want to stay at the party, and so they're thrown into the outer darkness. Here endeth the word of the Lord. Now that's the sermon, in in short, that I have heard preached on this passage before. It's the sermon with the established weight of Christian interpretation behind it, and frankly, I think it is a terrible sermon. Uh, let's think for a moment about where this sermon might take us if we were to follow it through to its logical conclusion. Let's start with the king, the one throwing the banquet for his son, the wedding banquet for his son. Well, what do we know about him from Jesus' parable? To start with... He's pathologically obsessed with giving his son a magnificent party. It doesn't really seem to matter who the guests are, just so long as the party is good. He's also a king who keeps some pretty dubious company. Let's not forget that his preferred guests for this party are themselves hardly the nicest of people. They are, we are told, arrogant landowning businessmen with a tendency towards murderous violence. The king is also a military man of means. We know that he has slaves and that he has troops and that he is ready to use all this power to its full capacity. So he thinks nothing of putting to death anyone who slights him. He's happy to send in the troops to burn an entire city to the ground if they don't give him the respect to which he believes himself entitled. He is, in short... A military, self-aggrandizing, capricious, despotic dictator. He looks very much like the Herods of the first century, or possibly like the more psychotic of the Roman emperors. What he doesn't look like, if we're honest about it, is God. Or perhaps he does look like God if you've got an image of God as a military, self-aggrandizing, capricious, despotic dictator, which is, of course, exactly how some people do view God. There are many who believe that God is just waiting to catch them out, to throw them out, to cast them into the place of darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There are many who believe that God's gracious inclusion only goes so far and that if we don't respond properly, 
we'll find ourselves on the receiving end of his sacred violence levied in judgment on us and the rest of the sinners. But I want to suggest something which by now may seem obvious. This is not God. What this is, is a huge case of mistaken identity. So I'm going to suggest that we try and set aside the sermon we thought we might get on this passage. I'm going to suggest we try to put out of our minds the sermons we may have heard on this parable before, and that we try reading it afresh to see what might emerge from it if we hear it a bit differently. What if the king in Jesus' parable is not God? What if his son isn't Jesus? What if the first invited guests aren't the Jews? What if the forced-in guests aren't grateful to be there? And what if the man with the wrong clothes on isn't a sinner? What if people have simply been reading this parable wrong all these years because they have been reading it through the lens of a wrong view of God? What does this parable look like if God is not a violent dictator after all? So let's try and hear this parable as those listening to Jesus may have heard it. There was a king who had a son, Jesus begins, and his hearers would already have been nodding along. Wasn't there just? We can hear them asking. Herod the Great had been appointed ruler of Judea, by the Romans some 70 years previously, give or take a year or two, and after a reign of nearly half that, had died and handed on the kingdom to his descendants, the Herodian dynasty, as they became known. Through a series of careful strategic marriages, he and his descendants had ensured that they were able to continue their despotic rule of Judea and Israel for generations. And there's nothing like a royal wedding to reunite the population behind the fading appeal of an ageing monarch, is there? And royal weddings, as we all know, lead to royal babies. And so fresh life is breathed into the tired old family firm and everyone is won over for another generation. Or at least that's the theory. Some of us are not so easily seduced, but that's another story. The Herodians had been ruling Judea for generations. Their power base, carefully propped up by strategic alliances and marriages, and supported by the world-class Roman military, and legitimated by a string of propaganda exercises designed to keep the people happy, or at least if not happy, on side. What's interesting in Jesus' story is that the invited guests to this latest royal wedding choose not to attend. We already know what kind of people they are. They're exactly the kind of people you'd expect to find at a Herodian royal wedding. One of them is a landowner. One of them is a businessman. They are the elite. And it seems they're turning against this king... Perhaps his popularity is running out. Perhaps it's time for a change. There's always a pretender to the throne waiting in the wings if the current incumbent oversteps the mark. So the king pushes them a bit harder, and they push back, seizing the king's slaves and killing them. It's insurrection time. Civil war is only moments away now. 
So the king has to act fast, and he sends in the crack troops to utterly destroy those who have defied him, burning their city to the ground, we are told. This is a response worthy of any dictator in any age. But there's still a party to have. There's a succession to secure. There's a population to be wowed with wedding cake and bunting in the streets. And God help anyone else who doesn't want to play monarchist. Come in, come in, come to the feast and don't you dare say that you've got somewhere else you want to be. This is political royalist propaganda at its most blatant. And of course the people play ball. I mean, who wouldn't? Everyone loves a royal wedding if they know what's good for them. Except for one, who doesn't play ball at all. He's there along with everyone else who's been forced to the party, but he's not joining in. He's wearing the wrong clothes. He's silent when he should be singing. He's still when he should be shouting. He's the party pooper. He's the one who makes everyone else feel uncomfortable because he's showing their forced jollity for what it is, a lie inspired by fear. The kingdom of heaven is like this, said Jesus, introducing this parable. And we may well now ask, in what way is this story like the kingdom of heaven? After all, we've just established that the kingdom is not the banquet, And the king is not God. This is a very earthly story. One familiar, not just to those hearing it from Jesus, but to those in any generation who have looked at their ruling elite and seen nothing but self-interest and violent corruption. So where in this parable is the kingdom to be found? The kingdom of heaven, as we know from some of Jesus' other parables, is not always to be found in the places one might expect. Sometimes it's the mustard seed, small, almost invisible, fragile, waiting to be discovered in the most unexpected of places. I think it is there in this parable. We just need to look carefully to find it. When faced with a murderous regime or a despicable dictator... This parable points to three possible responses. The first is the path taken by the initial guests. You know, those who were first invited, the landowner, the businessman. And this first response is the response that plays the political game. It's the response that seeks to effect regime change and will resort to violence if necessary. The problem with this, of course, is that not only is it a high-risk strategy, as the landowning businessmen in Jesus' story were to discover, but even if it is effective, you only end up replacing one Herod with another, and nothing really changes. This is the path that will most readily appeal to those with a vested interest in the status quo, those who have been previously cozying up to the dictator, diligently attending all his parties, right up until the moment when the wind changes against him. The second response is that taken by those who actually end up at the feast that has been thrown by the king. This is the path of least resistance. This is the path that says... I know he's a dictator, but what are you going to do? It's the path taken by those who feel disempowered, by those who live in fear or apathy or both. 
those who just want to be left alone to get on with their quiet lives. If others take a stand and die for the trouble, that's very sad, but at least we still survive for another night. And really, is there anything so wrong with a bit of partying on demand, even if it does represent capitulation to state propaganda? The third response is that taken by the man in the corner who's wearing the wrong clothes. In a world of violence and enforced capitulation, he stands apart. This, surely, is the kingdom of heaven personified. This is the kingdom of heaven as the suffering servant, the one who remains silent before his accusers, who goes to his death in defiance of the forces that seek continued and unfettered reign to diminish, distort and demean humanity. In the world of the prophetic book of Isaiah, written some 600 or so years before the time of Jesus, speaking to a time of military occupation and enforced exile at the hands of the Babylonian exile, we find the origins of this suffering servant counter-testimony to the ideology of empire. The Babylonians had declared that the world must bow down before them or face terrible consequences. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, had declared that all must worship him and him alone. And it was in the midst of this world that Isaiah started to articulate the dream of a new world. In the midst of oppression, Isaiah wrote of a hopeful future, of a time where tears would be wiped away and people would be free to feast with their God in joyful celebration of liberty from subjugation. The kingdom banquet dreamed of by Isaiah, which we heard in our Old Testament reading, is a world away from the wedding banquet of the king in Jesus' parable. But there is a common thread, and it's the figure of the suffering servants. You see, the insight of the prophet Isaiah was that this new world of justice and equality could only come into being through the suffering of the innocent, those who take their stand in defiance of the inequalities and violence that otherwise dominates the world. So Isaiah personifies the nation of Israel as the servant of the Lord and speaks of the people of God as, as a faithful servant who is wounded and marred and killed for the sake of the new world that is coming into being. In Isaiah's time, this was clearly referring to the suffering of the nation of Israel at the hands of their Babylonian oppressors. And of course, the New Testament writers used this same ancient image of a suffering servant to describe what they saw in Jesus, who went to his cross to take upon himself the violence of humanity, opening the way through death to resurrection and new life for all. And it is this same figure of a suffering servant that we meet in Jesus' own story of the wedding banquet. The silent man who has refused to put on the appropriate garments of celebration for the royal wedding is seized by the king's attendants and bound like a sacrificial victim and thrown into the outer darkness. This is the crucial moment in the parable. It is here that the kingdom of heaven finally comes into view. The guests at the banquet in the parable are in all sorts of trouble. 
They live in a world of violence and fear. They're asked to accept propaganda that legitimates their own oppression and coercion. And they're in no position to challenge the king because those who have already tried that are now dead with their city burns to the ground. The guests at the king's banquet are people with no hope. And it is to those who live in the land of darkness that the unrobed man comes. Standing there in their midst, one of them yet not one of them. With them but not the same as them. He takes onto himself the wrath of the king and becomes the sacrificial victim. He interrupts their victimhood by making himself the victim for all. So what about us? We, like the prisoner guests of the tyrannical king, live in a world of violence that is not of our choosing or of our making. There is horror being played out before our eyes in Syria and Iraq. And our leaders don't know how to respond except by trying to bring peace through violence which some of us suspect just perpetuates the suffering to another generation, at best deferring it to another year. And we might well ask, in the midst of all the complexities of war and suffering, where is the kingdom of heaven to be found? Where is the counter-testimony to the dominant ideologies of retaliation or compliance? Where is the kingdom When those who were once our friends are now our enemies, where is the kingdom when those who were once our enemies are now our friends? Where is truth and justice and righteousness and forgiveness and peace in a world of terrorism and bloody murder? Where are those who are taking a stand? Where are those who will not bow to the king? Where are those who will not comply? Where in the midst of the spirals of violence that define our world is the kingdom of heaven to be found? Where in a world of dictators and despots, of ideologies and propaganda, where in all of this is the kingdom of heaven to be seen? Sometimes it's very small, very hard to find. Tomorrow. I'm going to Westminster. I'm going to go to uh, an event called the National Caucus for the Persecuted Church. Um, I'm the representative, not just of this church, but I'm the representative of the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Look at Simon. This meeting will draw together various senior political figures. There will be members of the House of Lords. There will be political analysts. There will be senior clergy from all the major denominations. There will be senior representatives from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, from the Refugee Council and from the Canadian High Commission for Religious Freedom. And the focus of the meeting is going to be talking about how best to help those Christians in northern Iraq who have been displaced from their homes for their refusal to capitulate to the demands of those who hold power over them. Should they stay put? Should they be granted asylum? Should we send in troops to try and create safe havens for them? 
Many Christians in northern Iraq, as in so many other places around the world, have chosen to stand with the suffering servant. They've chosen to stand alongside the quiet man in the wrong clothes at the wedding banquet of Jesus' parable. And they are bearing the marks of suffering in their own bodies for their refusal to join the party of capitulation to the dominant ideology. And by doing so, they are bearing faithful testimony, even unto death, of their refusal to be conformed to the demands of this world. They are refusing to be intimidated by the violence of the king, refusing to bow down to the system of domination that seeks to control them. They are holding fast to the cross of Christ. And Jesus might well ask of us where we will be found standing at the king's banquet. Many are called, but few are chosen. To put it another way, where are we going to take our stand?